following is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Good morning. It's good to be with y'all always. Uh, always a privilege to get to be uh, asked back somewhere you've preached before. Um, it just means I wasn't crazy last time. Or... Michael was just desperate. Who knows? I don't know. But I'm always glad to be back with you guys. If you've got a Bible, you can turn it to uh, Mark chapter 4. As Michael said, I'm the RUF campus minister uh, at Trinity, and it is a privilege to serve our denomination in that capacity. If you ever want to hear more about what's going on at Trinity, uh, ways that you can pray, anything like that, I'd be delighted uh, to tell you about that. Uh, We are thankful to get to work on your behalf uh, and to go to that campus. So we love what we get to do. Michael mentioned that I have big shoes to fill, and I would 100% agree with that uh, assessment. And I'm going into my third year as the campus minister at Trinity. And being fairly new at this, it is really easy for me to struggle with doubt. Uh, Is anything that we are doing really working? Am I really the guy that's supposed to be doing this job? I, I love my job, but there are plenty of days where the results can be kind of discouraging. Days where students choose sin and self over Jesus days where the gospel seems to fall on deaf ears, Uh, days where my own spiritual progress seems to be working in reverse, uh, where I'm not growing as I want to be growing. And um, it raises the question for me, what what do we do when by all appearances, nothing seems to be working? Uh, Our spiritual progress is kind of stagnated. Um, The seeds we are trying to plant for God's kingdom don't seem to be bearing much fruit. What do we do when it seems like nothing is happening? I wonder if you don't have some version of this question uh, in your own life. Perhaps uh, one of your children is wandering from the faith and you have tried, you have prayed, you have texted them Bible verses, you've uh, asked them to reconsider and they seem intent on going down that path. Maybe you've shared the gospel with your neighbor time and time again and it just seems to fall on deaf ears. They're unresponsive. They seem uninterested in what you have to say about Jesus. Or maybe in your own life, like with me sometimes, you've just been in a season of spiritual drought for as long as you can remember. It's just dry. It's just a dry time for you spiritually and nothing you do seems to help. What do we do now in these situations? Uh, I picked this parable from Mark chapter four for us to look at because it encapsulates one of my favorite sayings that RUF tries to hammer into us as campus ministers. And that is this, God is at work. God is always at work. When all appears lost, God is at work. When nothing seems to be working, God is at work. So with that in mind, let's read this from Mark chapter four, verses 26 through 29. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Our God and heavenly father, we do praise you for your words. As Moses told your people, your words are not empty words. They are our very life. And we even heard this morning, it read that your word does not return to you void. Uh, that it accomplishes whatever you set out for it to do. And so whatever that is this morning, God, we would claim that promise for ourselves. We would ask that your word would do that which you've set it out to do. 
Jesus, you said you're our good shepherd and that your sheep know your voice. And so I pray that you would help us to know it this morning. We long to hear from you. And so I pray that you would speak. Pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. The year was 1965. There was a Harvard psychologist by the name of Robert Rosenthal. And Dr. Rosenthal approached this California public elementary school with a proposition. He offered to test the school's students with this newly developed test uh, that would, he called it an intelligence identification tool. He called it the Harvard test of inflected acquisition, which sounds like the kind of thing someone at Harvard would come up with. And he claimed that it could accurately predict which children would excel academically in the new year. And so the school, when you're approached by a Harvard psychologist, they naturally agreed. Uh, the test was administered to the entire student body. And a few weeks later, the teachers were provided with the names of the children, about 20% of the student body who had tested as quote unquote, high potentials. Students who had really excelled. These particular children, the teachers were informed, were special. These children were really special. Though they may not have performed well in the past, the test indicated that they possessed unusual potential for intellectual growth. Now, the students had no idea. They were not given the test results. Uh, they were not informed of how they did. And so they had no idea how they had done going into the new school year. But the teachers knew which ones had come out as high potentials. So the following year, that year passes. The following year, Dr. Rosenthal returns to measure how these high potential students had performed the year after taking the test. And exactly as the test had predicted, the first and second grade high potentials had succeeded to a remarkable degree. The first graders gained 15 more IQ points than the rest of their class. And the second graders gained 10 more points than the rest of their class. The test had worked. The test had accurately predicted their academic success. But it actually went further than that. The teachers reported that the high potentials success had gone further than just academics, better than just good grades. Their teachers described them as being more curious, happier, better adjusted, and more likely to experience success as adults. More than that, the teachers reported that they themselves had actually enjoyed teaching more than any year since they had begun their work. And of course, as you know, because a preacher is telling you a story, there is a twist coming, and I think some of you have probably already guessed what it is. Here it is for those of you who haven't figured it out yet. The results of the Harvard test of inflected acquisition were complete baloney. They were completely made up. Dr. Rosenthal had chosen these high potential students at random. They had not been really tested at all, which raises a fascinating question. If they weren't actually smarter than their peers, how is it that they ended up performing better anyway? How did this fake test accurately predict which students would do really, really well? It turns out that the real subject of Dr. Rosenthal's test was not the students, but the teachers. And specifically, the narratives that drive the relationships between students and their teachers. What happened, Dr. Rosenthal discovered, was that replacing one story, these are average kids. With a new story, these are special kids destined to succeed. Reoriented the teachers in such a way that they related to the students in a manner that they actually guided the students toward that goal. Once they believed that the students were capable of high potential, they actually treated them 
like they were capable of high potential. It didn't matter that the story was made up. Didn't matter that the children were in fact randomly selected. This simple glowing idea, this child has unusual potential for intellectual growth, changed how the teachers taught and it changed how the children actually learned. The narratives that we believe uh, shape how we live. The stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, about the world, about our neighbors, about those who are lost, about our children, those narratives matter. They shape how we live. Even that false story had a profound effect on those teachers and those children. What does that have to do with us this morning? Uh, I wonder if I asked you the question, what do you believe about the world? What do you believe is going to happen in the world? What do you believe God is doing in the world? If I asked you that question, what do you believe about the world and God's work in it? I wonder how you would answer. If what we just heard is true, then how you answer that question is of the utmost importance. So what do you think of the world? Let me throw out a couple of possible answers to that question. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Ever heard anybody say something like that? How might that narrative affect how you live in the world? What about this one? My kid is too far gone. How might they change how you parent your child? You want a personal one? College ministry is a waste of time. How might that affect your, how your campus minister at Trinity University does his job? Is it possible that our cynicism, our prayerlessness, our lack of zeal and evangelism, is it possible that all of these things are rooted in what we believe about the world and what God is doing in it? In our passage this morning that we read, Jesus gives us a better story. And unlike the story that Dr. Rosenthal told those teachers, this one is actually true. God is at work. He reminds his disciples and us about the nature of his kingdom. Jesus compares it to a seed that goes into the ground and in due time cannot help but grow into a full harvest. We have one big idea this morning. I've already said it. God is at work. No matter how things appear to your human eyes, God is at work. And that story being true changes how we live. It has to change how we live. It changes how we work, how we live in our neighborhoods, how we pray and parent, uh, pray for and parent our children. It changes all of these things. The parable that Jesus puts before us is fairly straightforward. The kingdom of God is coming as surely as when someone drops seed in the ground, that seed sprouts and grows until it becomes a crop that is ready to be harvested. Once that first domino falls, all the others are sure to follow, Jesus tells us. So I think Jesus wants his followers to have confidence that the kingdom of God really is coming. It's really coming in all of its fullness. So what does that mean for us this morning? I think there are three implications for us, three takeaways for our lives and how we think about um, God's mission in the world from the assurance that God is at work. Number one, God is at work so we can be patient. God is at work so we can be patient. Number two, God is at work so we can be humble. And number three, God is at work so we can be confident. Patient, humble, and confident. Let's look first at patient. Jesus gives us this parable as a reminder that the kingdom of God is coming, but it's coming in God's timing, not in ours. Uh, We are a people that are obsessed with instant gratification, at least if you're anything like me, you are. Uh, I think Amazon is partly to blame for this. Amazon two-day shipping has ruined my life. Anything that I want, but I could just holler at Alexa to bring to me and it's on my doorstep two days later. 
I feel like we're all turning into that girl you remember from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, who just is like, I want it now. I think that about everything. And yet our parable tells us the kingdom's timing is gonna be different. Verse 27 tells us that this man sleeps and rises night and day. What is he doing? He's waiting. He's doing what you normally do after you get done with work, right? Going to bed, getting up, going through the normal process. He's waiting. The seed is sprouting and growing in a process that he doesn't have a hand in, that he doesn't even fully understand. He doesn't have control of the timing. But he knows eventually a harvest is coming. He knows how this process works. Eventually, a harvest is coming. In verse 28, Jesus says, the earth produces by itself. Uh, That Greek word there is automate. I probably don't even have to tell you what that translates to in English because you can hear it in the word itself. It's automatic. That's what Jesus is saying. The earth is automatic once the seed goes in. The seed goes in and the earth just takes over. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that. The kingdom of God is automatic. I love what Robert Farrah Capon writes about this verse. It's actually printed in the front of your bulletin. Listen to what he writes. He says, Jesus says the earth and all of it, mind you, good, bad, or indifferent, bears fruit of itself automatically. Just put the kingdom into the world, he says in effect. Put it into any kind of world, not only into a world of hotshot responders or spiritual pros, but into a world of sinners, deadbeats, and assorted other poor excuses for humanity which, interestingly enough, is the only world available anyway. And it will come up a perfect kingdom all by itself. First the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. This ought to bring us great comfort. God's kingdom is not dependent upon our methods. Does God use our methods? Of course he does. But it's not dependent upon our methods. His kingdom is inevitable. It is certain. And the certainty of that coming kingdom means that we can afford to be patient with it. Patient with God, patient with our neighbors with whom we're sharing the gospel, patient with our own sanctification and growth in grace. Um, I've now accepted, uh, at this point, I'm turning 31 this month. I've just accepted that this is as tall as I'm gonna be. I'm not growing any taller than this. It's really sad to realize that you have no growth spurts left. Uh, I believe to an an embarrassingly late age that I was gonna play like professional sports even though I was not playing like high school sports, I was like, I could get this together if I needed to. I just realized way too late. Now you're not the right size for this. This is never gonna happen. But like many kids, especially kids who are small, I was obsessed growing up with how tall I was. Uh, I remember my parents having this door frame where they would mark our heights. Many of you do this with your children. And I wanted to measure every single day. I wanted to see if I had grown at all the day before. I had zero patience with growing. It was just taking way, way, way too long. I would get so frustrated when I would go up to the door and I would realize the line hasn't moved. This is taking forever. We have to speed this thing up. Never going to get in the NBA at this point, apparently. It's funny to me now because my wife and I, Mary, we have a son, Cooper. Uh, Being a parent, he's just, he's about to turn 10 months old, which seems crazy to me. But being a parent of a newborn, uh, this entire process has flipped for me because I have the exact opposite reaction to my son's growth. His growth is happening way, way, way too fast, right? We don't need to speed this up. We need to slow this thing down. He went from barely rolling over to crawling and pulling up on everything in like a week. I'm half expecting to just find him out in the backyard, like running a poker game and smoking cigarettes next week. I mean, it is happening, happening so fast. 
What is the difference between a kid's perspective on growth and a parent's perspective? When you're a kid, you're too close to it. Kids, I hope you find that encouraging. You will grow. It will happen. I know it doesn't feel like it, but it's going to happen. You're going to grow up one day. But the hard thing about being a kid is that you haven't experienced enough time yet. You don't have the perspective on it. You're too close to it. But as adults, we know better. We've experienced more time. We've seen it. We've watched time get away from us. We've seen years slip through our fingers. We know that babies don't keep. We don't want to wish any of this away. If anything, we would slow it down, right? We sl- at least some of the time, right? You get to teenage years, you may press fast forward for a little while, but we want to slow it down. We want to experience this process. We have a different perspective now that we're adults than we did when we were kids. I think Jesus in this parable is inviting us to grow up. He is inviting us into a different perspective of God's kingdom. It is coming as sure as anything. It's going to happen. It is automatic. And so we can be patient. God is at work. God is at work. His kingdom is really coming. What would it look like if you actually believed that? How might your life actually change if you really believed that you could be patient because God is at work? I think at least in part, we would be more patient with ourselves. While the kingdom of God entails way more than your personal growth, it does not entail less than that. How many times have we looked at our spiritual progress and been like that little kid constantly running up to the doorframe to measure, to see if they've grown, if they got any taller yesterday? Lord, can't we speed this up? How am I still struggling with this, Lord? Why can't I get past this? In Philippians 1.6, Paul writes, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is going to finish the work in you that he has started? That the God who started a good work in you plans to finish it? We're in the middle of a bathroom renovation at the Nettleton house. And uh, we have entered what I would just call the acceptance phase of the project. Like we've just accepted this is never gonna be done. It's just never going to happen. There's not gonna be a bathroom door. We'll just be those people, I guess. <laughs> just, we'll all have to leave the house anytime someone has to go to the bathroom. Um, our sanctification can feel like that, right? Is this ever going to be finished? Is this project ever gonna wrap up? And the answer, Paul tells us in Philippians, is yes. Yes. The God who began a good work in you fully intends to finish that. Why can you trust that you are going, the project of your own sanctification is going to be finished? Because God is at work and he always finishes what he starts. He always finishes what he starts. In Philippians 2, 12, Paul tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Kind of a scary thing for him to say to us. But why does he say that? He then follows that up. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So can I encourage you, please don't give up. Many of you are struggling this morning. You are struggling to keep going in the Christian life because it is hard, and it is. But please don't give up. God is at work in you. He intends to finish that which he has started. God is not done with you yet. He's not done with your neighbor. He's not done with your children. He's not done with your in-laws. He's not done with this world. Be patient. God's kingdom is coming. 
God is at work so we can be patient. But secondly, God is at work. That means we can be humble. Another implication of this parable is that we can be humble. Look back at verse 27. It tells us the seed sprouts and grows. And we have this interesting phrase that follows that. He knows not how. This man has cast seed on the ground. A process he doesn't fully understand has taken over. He goes to bed, he gets up, and somehow, almost by magic, the seed is growing. This much the man knows. It's not him doing it, right? He just put the seed in the ground. As we go about the work of God's kingdom, we are no different. Paul picks up on this agricultural language in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Believing that God is at work humbles us as we go about doing what Jesus commanded us to do. God is the one who gives the growth, not us. Why does this matter? I think it matters because getting this wrong leads us to either arrogance or shame as we go about trying to do the things Jesus has called us to do. It leads to arrogance because we believe that everyone's salvation is dependent upon us. If someone does get saved through our evangelistic efforts, that's a notch in our belt. We did it. We must be better at this than the other Christians are. Our methods are effective. And of course, the inverse is true as well. If they don't get saved, then of course, we are failures who just can't do anything right. We've screwed them up and everyone else as well. I think this parable invites us to have some humility, some humility as we go about sharing the gospel with other people. The kingdom of God is not dependent upon your methods or your efficacy. The man sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. This, of course, is not an invitation to inactivity or to laziness, right? The man did work. He did sow his seed. He did what was his to do. And as Christians, of course, we also have things to do, right? Jesus told us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them everything that he commanded. But the question is, do we have the humility to echo Paul? I planted God gave the growth. I planted, God gave the growth. I think the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how, are some of the most encouraging words in scripture if we have the ears and the humility to hear them. God is at work so we can be patient. God is at work so we can be humble. And lastly, God is at work so we can be confident. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 tells us that God's word does not return to him void. When God sends out his word, it does what he wants it to do. Paul tells us in Romans 10 that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That as the word goes out, people come to faith. And Jesus in Matthew 16 told Peter that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. One of the reasons our denomination has sent me to the campus of Trinity University is because we have 100% confidence that God is at work. If we didn't believe that, if I didn't believe that, if it were completely up to me, we would absolutely despair. Because whatever you may think of me this morning, I assure you 18 to 22-year-olds do not find this all that impressive. Uh, they, they do not find this whole frenetic energy thing all that exciting. If it were just up to me to be cool and hip and exciting and fun, we would be in big trouble. In this parable, Jesus tells us that as surely as a seed is cast into the ground and in due time grows up and is ripe for the harvest, just as surely as the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven, which gives me great comfort as we get ready to go back to campus in a couple weeks. First day of class is a few weeks from Wednesday. And what that means is that in a few weeks, when, we, when students do return, we're gonna go to campus 
We're gonna take our RUF cups. We're gonna take our flyers. We're gonna invite students to our large group Bible study, to our small group Bible studies. My intern and I are gonna meet with them one-on-one. We're gonna try and build relationships with them. And we're gonna do that so that we can share the best news that we know. That Jesus Christ laid down his life that they might truly live. And we believe that that's gonna work. We believe that that's gonna work. Why? Because we figured out the one weird trick to supercharge our evangelism. Because we're just so fun and exciting and uh, so charismatic and gifted. No, we believe that's gonna work because King Jesus goes before us. The one who was planted in the ground like a seed and rose three days later and sits on the throne of heaven, who has told us that the gates of hell will not stand against us, goes before us. And he says that the kingdom is coming. And so we believe him. So we go to a college campus and we do the foolish thing of preaching the gospel. And we believe that college students are gonna come out of darkness and into God's marvelous light because the kingdom is coming. God is at work. God is at work. He is doing his work. As we plant seeds, we believe he will keep his promise to give the growth. We do not know how this is gonna happen. We don't know when it's gonna happen exactly, but we believe that it is going to happen. Can I invite you to believe that too this morning? Not just about college ministry, but about your own life. That God is at work. And so the seeds you are planting in your neighborhood and at your workplace and in your home and in your family are not being wasted. God is at work. The kingdom is coming. Can I invite you to sow the seeds of Christ's kingdom patiently, humbly, confidently, trusting that in due time, a harvest is going to come. Why? Because Jesus goes before you. Because the kingdom is automatic. God is at work and he is going to finish what he started. God is at work, so we can be too. So what can you do this week? Who can you pray for that you've stopped praying for? Who can you call back? Who can you invite over to dinner? Who can you send a text message to? God is at work. Those seeds will not be wasted. Jesus has risen from the dead and he sits on the throne of heaven and his kingdom is coming. Let us go and be a part of planting those seeds. Amen, let me pray for us. God in heaven, we do thank you that your kingdom is coming. We thank you because we know that if it was up to us, we couldn't do it. We couldn't manufacture it. Try as, we, try as best as we could, God, we could never make this work. And so we're thankful that you are at work and that you've given us things to do, simple seeds to plant, and that you are gonna take over from there, that the growth is going to come and you are going to grant it. And eventually a harvest in all of its fullness will be here. God, I pray that you would give us the patience to wait on that, patience with ourselves, patience with you, patience with your kingdom. I pray that you would give us humility, God, that we would not despair uh, when our efforts seem to not work and that we would not be arrogant when they do. And I pray that you would give us confidence, God, that even this week, even tomorrow, even today, maybe, that we would go out with confidence in sharing your kingdom, not because of us, but because of you, because you've promised to finish what you start. We pray that you would do that in us and in your church and in the world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.